0: Hey, hey, y'all. It's me, Robin. And just real quick before we get to today's episode, if you are loving listening to the podcast, or maybe you don't know because you've just pressed play for the first time ever, but if you like to listen to things in your earbuds, you are going to be so happy to know that Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors is now released as an audiobook. You can get it in Audible, or wherever else you get your audiobooks. And of course, you can still get it in print and ebook. If you go to slash book, it's going to give you all the options, including that you could order a signed copy from my local bookstore. All righty, y'all. Here's that podcast episode you're waiting for. Why, hey there. Welcome, or maybe welcome back. To the Parenting After Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Robin Goble and together we're taking the science of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human and making that make sense and actually useful in your real life. This is a place for parents of kids with big behaviors and the helpers who support them to feel seen and known and gotten and understood and to actually get some actually useful ideas about how to help your kid. Y'all, this isn't a fancy podcast. I mean, maybe one day I'll hire a producer and do more editing and have some music, but for now we just press play and go. If you need more support after listening to this episode, you'll want to head over to my website because I have a lot of ways that we can connect, including a free masterclass on what behavior really is and a free ebook on attachment. I also have an online community that's comprised of, seriously, y'all, the most amazing, awesome parents on the planet. We call ourselves The Club. The Club is a space for parents to get the connection, co-regulation, and a little education that you need to keep making it through those overwhelming, exhausting, and no-end-in-sight days of parenting a kid with big behaviors. The club welcomes new members periodically. So head over to the website and get on the wait list. RobinGobel.com slash the club. The next time the club opens its doors, it's going to be like this big grand reopening because so many new and amazing things are happening in the club. I can't wait to share them with all of my current club members. And then all of y'all who are just waiting to become members. It should be soon. Promise. Today, in today's episode, I get to introduce you to another human who's out there in the world doing good, important work, Dr. Sarah Bren. I met Dr. Bren through a mutual acquaintance, and it's been really fun getting to know her. Dr. Bren has her own podcast called Securely Attached, and I got to be a guest in late 2021. I'll link to that episode down in the show notes. Dr. Brent is a clinical psychologist, and she's a mom to two little ones living in upstate New York where she has a practice working with new parents, and particularly the parents who want to parent a little bit or maybe even a lot differently than they were parented. Dr. Brent told me that she developed an interest in working with parents when, when she became a parent herself. She was learning about parenting and and parenting models. And through all of that learning, she realized that so much of what she was reading about parenting was really similar to the work that she was doing with adult clients in her office who had had... challenging childhoods. So this insight really sparked Dr. Brent's interest in working with parents and especially new parents with a goal of helping them break generational patterns and then maybe eventually, hopefully reducing the number of adults who have to heal from their childhood. That's a pretty awesome goal. So without any further ado, let's get into this super fun conversation that I had with Dr. Bren about what secure attachment really is and what it isn't. Sarah, welcome to the show. So glad we get to have this opportunity to
1: talk again. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, this will be fun. We had a lot of fun when we talked previously, so I'm excited to see just kind of where we where we go from here. <laughs> yeah. So tell my listeners just about you. Who are you? What do you do? And how'd you get to be doing this work?
1: Yes. Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a mom of two. I have a four-year-old. He just turned four this weekend and a two-and-a-half-year-old. Yes. um, And it's funny because like I started out, I'm, I'm still a clinical psychologist. I have a group practice in, in Pelham, New York. Um, But I started out working with like adults who had pretty significant trauma histories, chronic childhood trauma and, you know, in, in, as adults. And a lot of our work was looking kind of going back to the beginning and understanding where these like early sort of attachment ruptures happened in in their childhood and how that kind of shaped the way they looked at the world and made relationships or struggled to, and, and kind of reverse engineered that. And then when I had kids, I was like trying to understand parenting and parenthood. And I got really interested in like a parenting philosophy called RIE, which is stands for resources for infant educators. And it's, it's not a clinical psychological philosophy. It's just like Mm -hmm. about attunement and parenting But I was like, oh, my gosh, this feels like what I'm doing with my adult patients. Yeah. And I was like, why are these two worlds not like talking to each other? And I was like, it made me sort of realize, like, if I can start to help parents understand, like, these building blocks of secure attachment from birth and understand, like, how we do it, how, how it feels intuitive and natural with our kids and how we can make these connections with their kids and use that as like the vehicle by which we parent. Yes. We can sort of help create this healthier generation of kids that aren't in therapy with me. Yes. In their thirties. <laughs> yeah. And I really shifted. I started working with parents and working with kids and working with families and I love it. So i that's like, I'm like all in now and i yeah. Really focus on that, and it's so wonderful.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about secure attachment. Um, like when people ask you these questions, how do I create a secure attachment to my <laughs> child? And I know i I know I want asked that question a long time ago before I was parenting and before I really understand what attachment really was. And I remember I've um, had Bethany Saltman on the podcast, the author of the strange situation memoir. Yes. Right. And we laughed because our kids are almost exactly the same age. And so we were reading, not knowing each other at all, but I could just picture uh-huh. us both sitting in our gliders on opposite sides of the country, like reading <laughs> Dr. Sears, the baby book and yes. going like, where's this checklist? Like, I need a checklist, please. I need to wear my baby for 12 months and I need to co-sleep and I need to, breath. you know, I was like, I right, right. really wanted there to be a checklist and was pretty bummed out that there wasn't one. And I know other <laughs> parents, not everyone feels that way, but some people don't feel that way. The, like, tell me the checklist and I'll do it. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the yeah. non-existent checklist. Oh, if there were a checklist. <laughs>
1: I know. Right. In a weird way, there kind of is, but you're not going to let, I mean, this isn't going to be as satisfying as like a one, two, three, check, check, check. But right. I actually think our kids kind of do give us a checklist. We just kind of have to be willing to put our cognitive checklist aside and be like, it's not about, do I baby wear? Do I co-sleep? Do I respond to every need perfectly? But really it's more about like, can I sit in this space with my kid and mm-hmm. be with them? Yes. Can I respond to their needs? Can I respond to my needs? Can we both be two humans together in this space who are paying attention to one another, tuned into one another, but also two separate human beings Yes, like in tandem? We don't want to be merged. And like, right. I think sometimes attachment parent, like attachment theory and secure attachment yeah. is sort of like, I like to describe it as like an umbrella. Mm-hmm. And underneath that umbrella, there's lots of different sort of other ways of interpreting that theory and putting it into practice. Attachment parenting is like one section of underneath yes. that umbrella. It's a perfectly acceptable way to parent. It's not for everybody because it's really high demanding mm-hmm. on the parent. Mm-hmm. Um But if that's if that speaks to you, if that if that's the way you want to show up with your kid, then gosh, do it. Wonderful. Because that's the thing about secure attachment is it's not about doing the checklist, it's about how tuned in do I feel to my kid and how much joy do I have in that process of being tuned into my kid. So if attachment parenting brings you joy, you're gonna probably develop a pretty nice secure attachment with your Mm -hmm. child. If meeting those needs in that way, if that that intensity, that that, you know, being kind of with your child to that degree yes. is overwhelming for you or too stimulating for you or depleting for you, then that's going to make it really hard to stay in that tandem space with your kid and be really tuned in and enjoying that process. So maybe attachment parenting isn't the way that you develop your secure attachment with your kid, right? Maybe yeah, you, you said something
0: try- previously that yeah. you're saying again, right now, just about the words, you know, Anchor it, which is secure attachments about being attuned to your baby, but also to yourself. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yes. Totally.
1: Because you're two people. Yes. And it's very important. Yes. It's important for our child's development of their sense of self. Yes. That they understand that they are separate from us. Yes. And it's important for us to to maintain that sense of identity and wholeness as we parent our kid. Merger, merging with our child is not healthy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it cool. can make them very codependent. It can make us codependent. It can facilitate a codependent relationship. It can, it kind of robs a child of, uh, of self self confidence because they think that, you know, I really can't exist in this world to, by myself, I need somebody else to kind of help me be here. Um, Right. And I, so
0: back in the summer, I did the uh, G- June series on attachment and then did this like mm. attachment ebook that came along with it. And, and the, the imagery that I use throughout just really resonates with what you're saying right now, which is I used Venn diagrams. And so, uh-huh. you know, as conceptualizing secure attachment, you know, it's like, the you and the me are separate, but there's an overlap, but we don't lose ourselves in this overlap. Whereas Mm -hmm. in this more like anxious, preoccupied attachment, we see considerable overlap. So like there is no you without me or me without you. We've almost become one, which feels Mm -hmm. a lot like what you're saying right now.
1: Yes. Yes. There's a way in that. If if I feel like I can't exist as separate from you, whether yes. I, the parent, can't exist as separate from my child, or I, the yep. child, can't exist as separate from my parent, then that creates a lot of anxiety when we are not together. Right. And we don't we will really healthy secure attachment is not about actually meeting every single one of your child's needs and kind of just always being there like glued to them. That's that's the recipe for sort of the, the a, you know a less secure attachment. Yes. Um, we like the way I sort of try to describe it. And, and I think if you've ever heard of Winnicott and the good enough parent with a good yeah. enough mother, um, you know, he kind of articulates this really well. And basically his concept of the good enough parent mm-hmm. is that when we, when our children's born they're they are merged with us, right. They have no sense of where they end and we begin, it's this right. big blurry mess of like touch and Nourishment and darkness of sleep, it's just very blurry. Yes, Yes. but as they get older, as the weeks progress and they start to develop a little bit more awareness, and as a mother or a parent, we inevitably misattune to their needs some of the time. Like, we are going to our baby's gonna cry and we're gonna feed them, but really, they were crying because they were cold, or they're gonna cry because. They're tired and we're going to bounce them, you know, try to play with them. Like we, you can't read your kid's mind and, you know, you will have these natural appropriate misattunements with your child. And it's in these misattunements that the child starts to begin to develop that sense of separateness. I am different from my mom. We are not the same person, right? if, if we from day one meet every single one of their needs, the second that they have them, which is impossible. So it's never going to happen. But if it were to happen, the child would never start to develop that natural division, that natural separation where they're like, Oh, I'm, I am me and you are you. And I am me and you are you is like one of the most important concepts as human beings. Like I say that in therapy to my adult patients all the time when they're feeling like they're not, they're not feeling grounded in something. And I'm like, but you are you and they're them. Like you are two separate beings. And so that's, that separateness is really important. And it's the foundation for starting to develop a sense of self. Like that's the beginning of self-identity and identity formation and the self-esteem and all the stuff that comes with knowing that you are a human being in this world that is separate from others. And the space in between the child and the mother, that's a relationship. And that's the beginning of a relationship. And attachment refers to how secure is that relationship? How safe does that relationship feel? So we have to miss a tune to our kid to create that space, to help them understand that we're two separate people and for us to start to develop a relationship. And that's why, you know, it's, that's that Venn diagram, right? That the, we are not we do overlap yeah but we're not one circle right right we don't
0: lose ourselves to create this new space that doesn't exist anywhere else right which is the mm-hmm. space of me and you and yeah. this is the only place that this space gets created and there's energetic almost like this for me it feels like this energetic magic that happens in this yeah. amazing space but we don't lose ourselves in the creation of that space. Yes. Yeah. yeah we can. I really love how, wh- well, you can absolutely, but we don't have to, we can. Right. I think we have to be
1: mindful that it can happen so that we can so be, be cautious of not letting it happen. Cause it, it can happen without us realizing it's easy. Right. I think you know, you look at early motherhood and it's, it is blurry and we can start to lose ourselves. And I think there's a natural losing yourself from the very beginning of that, like postpartum fog, (laughs) but then you want to want to get your bearings again and say, Oh, wait, hold on. Let me anchor myself in me again.
0: I'm interrupting the show real quick because if you happen to be a new listener, you might find yourself being a little overwhelmed by all this information. That makes total sense. I mean, there's like 150 episodes plus all the free resources that are available over my website. It's just a lot. So many folks have asked me, where do I start? So I created a separate podcast stream called start here. What I did is I took the 10 episodes that I want you to listen to first, and then I want you to listen to in this specific order, and I put them into a separate podcast stream so that you don't have to search for them. You can just press play and they'll play one after the other after the other. If you go to robingobel.com slash start here, you'll be able to get an invitation to subscribe, and then you'll be able to listen right in the same podcast app you're using right now robingobel.com slash start here. Yes, well, and then the the reality, right? That it's impossible to attune to someone else if you're not first attuned to yourself. Oh yeah. Um, and that so really getting solidly, just like oh, of course, you know, when you're first in this new experience, a new relationship, that you've lost some connection to yourself because things are just so. Like, ah, I mean, I'm I'm having a hard time finding words for it, right? Like, it's it's really hard to be that tuned in in those early months, whether, you know, I work with a lot of parents who are parenting on a new parenting journey, but with an older child. Yeah, And so I have found, you know, some of the, there's some overlaps in what it means to even start as a family with an older child, as well as start as a family with a newborn that you just given birth to. And so I, I agree. There is some essence of this like blurriness that is just implicit in that newness, but as time goes on and as, you know, parents, get what they need so that they can kind of re-anchor and refine themselves and find this place of being in tune with themselves. Yeah. But yes, that that's exactly how ki- kids, babies, or, you know, again, so many of the families I work with are parenting older children. That is where that, like, I'm me stage begins to develop from. It's so important.
1: Yeah. And I think with parents who are coming into this with older children, like in a case of like foster or adoption, like it's still the birth of the relationship. Yes. And so you are starting from the very beginning in that respect. And my, you know, I think so. I can imagine certain places where like merger could be a risk, but also maybe in other places like disconnection can feel a risk. like. I don't, if you don't think of it as the birth of the relationship and you think like I'm coming in the back end and uh, it's already done and it's, there's no point in trying, there might be a lot of defensive sort of disconnect. Like I might emotionally want to connect with that child, but sort of unconsciously my fear that they won't be able to allow me in as their parent might create this sort of defensive, like, well, I'm just sort of over here and you're over here. And uh, I'm not sure what to do to bring those two worlds together.
0: Yes. Yeah. I love that. So let's talk about when I'm sure we have similar experiences when we're working with adult clients who are either reflecting on their own childhood experiences or Mm -hmm. their parents. And they've been parenting for a couple years, or maybe they have even adult children. And Mm -hmm. there's this moment of kind of, oops, like, I really quote unquote screwed that up, which is not my language, but oftentimes right. language that parents kind of put on themselves, mm-hmm. and and it kind of like a now what is it hopeless? Do we not get to do anything different or change anything? I mean, what do we do mm. when we have older kids or not infants, and we've realized? that there could be space to make some adjustments in how our relationship has developed.
1: Yeah. And I think for the parents that, and I get this too, it's like, well, it's, it's too late. I didn't do that. So where do we go from here? Because it's done. Right. And like, okay, yes, we have a lot of research that shows that attachment styles and ways that we sort of these patterns of secure or less secure patterns in relationships are pretty stable over time that every single relationship gets its own attachment quality right at yes. the attachment we talk about attachment as a pattern or a style but it's not fixed and it's actually not even like oh i am securely attached so my relationships are secure i each relationship the 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 security of the relationship or the security of attachment refers to the relationship yes And so relationships evolve, relationships change, relationships are fluid. And so you can always improve the quality of the relationship always. Like if you couldn't, then why would people go to therapy? Like I would be out of a job, right? Right. I'm in the business of helping people develop more safety in their relationships with me and then with themselves and then with others, right? Yes. It's kind of in that that step. Yes. But you need a safe person in order to shift that. So, like what first and I would maybe suggest if I'm talking to a parent who's like, I didn't do this with my kid and I want to, but I think it's hopeless. I think our first instinct would be like, well, let's look at your relationship with your child and see if we can improve it. And yes, that's a part of it. but actually, that's like the third step. Yep. Like first, you need to figure out where your safety is and why it is that you are feeling un- like why it's challenging to create that safety in your relationship with your kiddo or your big kid or your adult child. or and I think really that goes back to the self. like why are you feel where how do you feel safe? Who makes you feel safe? What's the safest relationship you've ever had? And think about why that relationship felt safe and what it felt like in your body to be safe with that person. And that's sort of a good place to start. And then trying to kind of reverse engineer that and try to understand like, what makes me feel safe? What, cause everybody has different, different like requirements for safety.
0: Yeah. I hear that so much too. Our parents come in and, and understandably want to know like, what do I do with my child Mm -hmm. to help this shift? And I think there's a space for, for both to be true that, you know, it can help parents see some relational patterns or some things that are happening specific in their relationship with them and their child that, you know, they could Take a step up and look at and make some adjustments there. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, where the real shift and change comes from is by getting, you know, I think kind of quiet with ourselves and looking at our own self and our own relationships with our relationship with ourself
1: mm-hmm. and
0: doing that deep and oftentimes just painful. Work, work, it requires yeah. a lot of bravery. Yeah, um, it does. And a safe place to do it, like in your therapist's office. So that's not the <laughs> only place, but, but yeah, right. to like step back. I like how you said that's kind of like the third step. We actually, yeah, it's certainly wanna, a step. Yeah, it's an important step for sure. And there's other things to do yeah. before or even in tandem with right. that will actually make the, those steps you take with your child so much more powerful.
1: Yes. Because the reality is, is it's very hard. Like, okay. If we're talking about helping our child, we're really, if you want to really distill it down, we're telling how do I help my child feel safe with me? Right. Yep. And I cannot make my child feel safe with me if I don't feel safe with them. And I can't feel safe with them. If I don't feel safe in my body, which means I have to feel safe with me. Yes. I, and a lot of times when you have people who have experienced, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, big traumatic experiences or parents who are cruel or hurt us, right? Like right. we can have insecure attachments just because we were, we're a little mis- mismatched with our parents, right? right? Parents tend to love their children, even when there's insecure attachment styles. Yes. No, yes. It's, it's very rare. You know, the, the the neglect or the abuse, that's very rare. Yet still we have insecure attachments. Why? Right. It's not because we weren't loved. It's because usually it's because there was some mismatch in that attunement and the attunement wasn't happening quite right in the way we needed enough of the time. And there's lots of reasons why that could happen. Very rarely is it because the parent didn't want to attune to us. Right. Um, It could be that they were depressed. And so, they just didn't have the energy or, or the capacity to like be as connected to us as, and and so we we had a lot of unmet needs. It could be that they were really anxious and they kind of overmet our needs and it was kind of suffocating. And it could be that they had other chaotic things going on in their life or their mind or whatever. And they were like, really met it sometimes and then really didn't meet it other times, which left us being very confused, which parent was going to show up for us there's always different ways that this can happen and it's nobody's fault, right? Very rarely is it anybody's fault. <laughs> and starting to understand like okay, well what's my you kind of have to go back. Like there's a really good book by Dan Siegel called Parenting from the Inside Out where he mm-hmm. talks a lot about like you have to understand your stuff. Yeah. In your history of how you were parented and the relationship you have with your parents, you know, to really understand how you're going to show up with your kid and in the ways that you may be showing up and not realizing it, right? Like if your child, I often say like um, the things that we are most activated um, by our kids, like the the behaviors or the emotional expressions that, that our kids do that activate us the most tend to be the ones that we weren't allowed to have when we were kids or that had elicited a strong reaction from our parents as kids or elicited no reaction at all when we wanted a reaction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have to figure out why this thing that my kid is doing is triggering me. And it's usually not because of the kid. It's usually because of something older and we have to kind of go back and figure that out so we can resolve it, make peace with it. And then, and then when our child does it, it's not activating for us anymore or it's less activating.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I remember working with somebody a real long time ago and, and talking about this idea of, of like looking at our stuff and and noticing being, Triggered or when like remnants from the past are kind of intruding. And there was some confusion in this thought of like, well, isn't everybody triggered by XYZ behavior? And I think that's such a fun question to like play around with that, mm-hmm. for example, lying. Sure, like nobody loves to be lied to, but <laughs> all of us have a different response. To somebody lying to us, yeah, and so both can be true. Like both can be true. That's like, well, being lied to is a relationship rupture, and we don't. Nobody likes relationship ruptures. But mm-hmm. why is lying something that really like lights up my neurobiology and makes me like totally mm-hmm. see red? Right, that there's mm-hmm. a space that we can acknowledge. Like, yeah, nobody likes this behavior. It makes sense that anybody would feel irritated by this specific behavior, but what about this behavior is specifically like causes me to kind of like lose my own grounding in the here and now, or Mm -hmm. really makes me flip my lid or respond as if this is almost like a life-threatening behavior, which it isn't. And so really looking at how both can be true. It can be an annoying behavior to anyone, but why is this behavior so specifically light me up and that this isn't criticism, right? Like we're not, nobody's doing anything bad or wrong. It's just about getting super curious. And that I think then becomes a way we can be in secure attachment with ourselves. Don't you think like we can Mm -hmm. be this kind of secure anchor point for ourselves with this curiosity about like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why that kind of lights
1: us up. So much
0: that, I mean, uh-huh. that is a statement. That's a curiosity of secure attachment.
1: Right. Well, cause it's your, I mean, typically when we have secure attachment, it's because we've internalized secure attachment figures in our life. Right. So, you know, we all start out as a kid with our parents or whomever's, you know, taking care of us. And it's like, again, like this is post merger, right? You're born with the merger. You separate, yes. you understand that they're separate, but they're, they exist in this sort of concrete, like you know, mom is mom. She is this external figure that soothes me when I cry or doesn't soothe me when I cry, whatever. You know, like she's I'm I'm learning the patterns of mom in relation to me, but she's outside of me. Yes. And then you start to have this more in this, like, you know, one, two years old. And then you start to have a process of internalizing the object. And before you can internalize that object, there's a transitional period, right? That's why kids really like transitional objects like a lovey or a stuffy or a teddy bear, because that object helps them kind of make that connection, that link yeah. between mom is mom. And she makes me feel comforted. Yes. And now I have this sort of object that represents mom. This is all unconscious. They don't like sit there and be like my mom is my teddy bear, but like (laughs) the teddy bear creates a similar sense of comfort. I'm associating those same feelings in my body. Mom makes me feel this way. My teddy bear makes me feel this way. My teddy bear can then become a transitional object, a stand in for mom when mom's not there to elicit that same sense of comfort and soothing. And then they get a little bit more sophisticated cognitively, where they start to internalize that sense of soothing. And it's like, I can conjure up the idea of mom in my mind when she is not present. And that has that same soothing effect. That's an internalized object, right? That's, that is all part of the development of self. And this is part child development. Like this happens relatively naturally. Um, and so I'm a big fan of like stuffed animals or a lovey at bedtime because that's a big separation for kids and have that sort of, they're not there yet where they can conjure you up in their mind. They need that middle man to sort of take that role. But so like I'm getting off on a tangent, but like the idea is if you have, you're helping a child to develop this internalized sense of you. We grow up as grown-ups, we still have those internalized objects, right? So when you're self-critical, that inner voice that's like, What the hell is wrong with you? Why did you do that? Usually it's rooted in some internalized object. I'm not saying it's your mother, but some experience in the world where some people in the environment were saying those things to you, and that became internalized, that became your narrative. Yes. And then if we instead have an environment that's really curious. Hmm, I wonder why you're feeling this way. Can you tell me more about what's going on for you? I want to understand, right? We internalize those objects. They start to be our inner, inner dialogue. So we start talking to ourselves with that same thing. Now we can change our inner dialogue with a conscious effortful shift. Once we make this stuff aware, like we start to realize, oh my gosh, I talk to myself in a really mean way. I'm really hard on myself. I'm really impatient with myself. I don't create a lot of space for safety or, you know, ambiguity or, you know, having contradictory feelings. Like I can, you know, if I notice that, then I can say, okay, well, I could do the work of trying to understand where that comes from. That's part of it. You can do that. I encourage people to do that because it makes this process easier. And also, you can start thinking about, okay, well, what would I like to say to myself? What would make me feel safe? Again, that goes back to say like, what's the safest relationship you've ever had? How did that person talk to you, see you, make you feel? Can we start to sort of embody those safe people, make those our internalized objects, activate those internalized parts of ourselves to be the part that's the louder part. You might still have that critical voice because that part of you is is there. And it's probably doing that to protect you in some way, right? Usually that critical sense of self is critical because it thinks it needs to be, to get you to be, do the thing that's going to keep you safe. Yeah. So we can help that part of ourselves, you know, say, oh, you know what? I don't need that kind of criticism to be safe right now. I've got this actually. You can be quiet. You can, you're safe. You don't need to be activated in this way to protect me in this way. Let me kind of find the part of me that's a little bit more empathetic, a little warmer, a little more curious, and bring that part forward and say, that's the part that's in charge right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think so many people can find spaces that already do live in their own internalized worlds that they can draw from, that has some of that little bit more compassionate voice. I mean, I've known people who even, they learned that kind of compassionate, curious voice from fictional characters, like from Mm -hmm. books that they've read or TV shows that they've watched and um, that that can be a part of that like new or different internalized voice of curiosity. Um, And then some people really do need to actively seek out new relationships now in their adult life that can be new experiences. Right. And so for people who are listening, who are, you know, really want to develop this new relationship with themselves, but are finding that like bordering on impossible. Like, I don't know how to get that self-critical voice to sound anything different or, or having it sound anything different. It feels so risky and vulnerable right. to me that, that often for me, just as a a cue or a clue that, well, before you can give that to yourself, you have to receive it from somewhere else. And of course you and I Mm -hmm. are therapists. So we're big fans of therapy, (laughs) but I also don't believe in any way, shape or form that that therapy is the only place that that can come from. It it can't be the only place it can come from because therapy is just not accessible enough Mm -hmm. to
1: everybody who needs it. And we know it's not the only place because people have found it without therapy, right? Like not everybody who's found healing in their pain has gone to therapy, right? Right. You can certainly find it through relationships, you know, spiritual relationships, whether it's from an organized religion or your own personal spiritual journey, you can find it through friends, right? Good friends, healthy friends. I always say like, you're, you want to make, you want to raise the bar and look for the healthiest people in your life and make connections with them because you, that healthiness is contagious and you want, you know, don't go to the least healthy friends. We all have our friends, our human beings. So Yeah depending if we have one friend or 10 friends, like we have to figure out like of those people who are the healthiest, what can I, and if they're not, if the few I do have, aren't healthy, how do I kind of separate and find some people in my life that are maybe I, then I don't go to the friend route. Right. Yeah. Is there like, uh, and and the research actually shows too, like with kids, it only takes one mm-hmm. healthy attack, securely attached relationship to, to provide that child with the benefits mental health and you know psychological benefits of secure attachment like you can you it just takes one mm-hmm. right kids who are in like severely like um like just where there's just so much emptiness in their world and they just don't have their needs being met by anybody like one teacher or one neighbor or one aunt or somebody one one parent one friend's parent right that one person can be what it takes to get that kid to like develop resilience and yeah. mental health.
0: Yes.
1: Um, so you don't need 50 people. You just need mm-hmm. one. You just need someone to show you that when I look at you, I see goodness and I see value and I have warm feelings towards you. And then when we have when we experience that, we and can internalize that like we are good people can love us we have value because we really internalize what we're reflected back to what the world reflects back to us yeah
0: yes yeah so everyone listening when you're thinking about like how do i again there's that million dollar question everyone's always asking both of us right which is how do i do this different for my kid And that that's such a wonderful, loving, curious question and starts in a little bit different place, which is how do I do this different for myself and where do I find those new experiences or find people who see me for like who I really am, which is A human who is extremely flawed and sometimes, frankly, acts very bad. I'm speaking for myself here. (laughs) And, you know, who are the people in my life who can see past, you know, set a really clear boundary with my behavior, right? Like, I don't need people who just let me walk all over them, but set a really clear boundary with my behavior, but also can see me for who I really am, which isn't the worst (laughs) parts. of my behavior, which is also true about our kids, but can I find people?
1: Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, it's funny because you're describing like a really healthy parent, right? A parent who can look at a child and say, I see you. I am not, I am not afraid of your big feelings. I'm not I'm not shaken by your behaviors. I can hold space for them. I can put boundaries. I won't let you destroy this relationship. I won't let you hurt yourself or hurt me. Um, That's a really sort of grounded way to parent. And so again, like if you can find people in your life that reflect that to you, you're gonna be much more effective in doing that with your kid because that is, I think, a big marker of that attuned parenting is to say, I can locate this child's behavior in... A context that doesn't threaten me, doesn't scare me, that doesn't activate my sympathetic nervous system and put me into fight or flight. Right? Yes. I can say, "Huh, you are having a, an a moment right now where your feelings are making it hard for you to control your body, and so you're lying or you're hitting or you're having a tantrum on the floor and melting mm-hmm. down right now." And and I can say to myself, "This is a safe thing. Mm-hmm. I'm, I I can. This is safe. I can stay." tuned in and connected to my child because I'm not threatened by this. I'm not scared by this. I might be overstimulated by this because it's probably overstimulating. And so I can sort of note how stimulated I'm feeling and maybe make sure that I'm consciously managing my nervous system to stay in that parasympathetic calm state of safety and connection to my child and not getting into flight or flight. But I can say, oh, I know what's happening here you're having a big feeling and it's making it really hard for you to stay in control of your body. So let me lean in to help you co-regulate, to help you stay safe, to reactivate that part of your brain that says, I'm safe. I can turn that fire alarm off. Yeah. And then, and then that, but you, you know, like it's, uh, it's all interconnected, right? We can't do that for our kid if we're threatened by our kid's behavior. So we have to be able to say, this is safe. I understand what's happening here. I can put boundaries. I'm in charge still. I can yeah. be the sturdy, calm leader in the face of your agitation or dysregulation because I'm, I'm got, I've got you. Yes.
0: Yeah. So much of my work with parents is um kind of defining where the line gets crossed because so many of the parents I work with actually sometimes are parenting in a situation that's truly not safe. Mm-hmm. And and helping them distinguish between, is this real not safe? In which case, yeah, let your brain do what it does. Like do your fight flight thing, because this is legit not safe. And I'm not going to try to pretend to you that it is, and you should be able to stay grounded while your kid is actually behaving in an extremely dangerous way. And at the same time, there are lots of situations in which our brain responds as if this is an emergency, something super Mm -hmm. dangerous is happening here when really it's not super dangerous. It's just maybe super uncomfortable or overwhelming or, Mm -hmm. um, or scary because there have been other times when, when the parents I've worked with have actually been in danger from their Mm -hmm. kid. And so that feels really present, but the truth is in this exact moment, that level of danger isn't present. Right. Um, and that's tricky and just takes, you know, so for anyone listening, just know, I mean, that just takes a lot of uh, practice, like a lot of practice. of Yes. And support and help and, yes. and acknowledging um, that those, there are probably moments for some people listening where they're, they've been in a relationship with their child and it truly hasn't been safe mm-hmm. and spending time, like really being, with yourself around, like how scary that was, or how traumatic it was, and mm-hmm. what do I need to do to take care of myself now so right. that in future experiences with my child, when again they're being uncomfortable or they're having a tantrum, but they're not dangerous, right. I can stay, you know, present and grounded and offer those kind of co regulating experiences. Right. It's tricky. Right.
1: It is tricky. And I even go so far as to say that even when your child, like I've worked with parents, where children have like very severe dysregulation disorders and they can get very violent and very aggressive. Yes. And in those moments, you want to actually not be in fight or flight. I mean, you will go into fight or flight. So you have to recognize, like, I accept that that happens. My body yes. appropriately responds to this threat by going into exactly. fight or flight. But I, if I want to be this sort of effective, um, you know, container for the situation, if I want to respond in a way that's going to be the most effective for my child, who's acutely dysregulated, out of control, engaged in very dangerous behaviors, then I need my frontal lobes on. Like I really need to be able to have a very quick response. I need to be clear in my thinking. And it's hard to do that when you're in fight or flight. So yes, we go in fight or flight. We have to understand that that is our body's innate reaction to that threat. But we want to sort of have the skill set, And again, this is where the support and the help comes in because you can't, it's very hard to do this by yourself. You know, you have a child that has this level of dysregulation. You want to have a ton of support Mm -hmm. in your life. And for that child too, you can't, it's just, you shouldn't be doing this alone. Right. But in that moment, you want to have an, an ideal scenario. Obviously it's never ideal, but you want to get into that place where you're saying my kid is still a good kid. My yes. kid is so acutely dysregulated. They're yeah. so far into their fight or flight at this moment that they're not accessing their, their, their brains off. Yeah. I want to know that as a parent, because that's going to allow me to stay, rel- again, it's like yes, there's danger, but my child is, it's like, you don't want to look at your child as like a bad, dangerous kid. You want to look at the situation as dangerous and you want to look at their dysregulation as dangerous. And you, that's a big distinction. Yes. And then that's going to give you the ability to say, this is, it's still safe. My kid is still safe. I can have a safe relationship with my kid, even in the face of this immediate acute danger in this moment, I'm going to respond to the danger. I'm going to try to contain the situation, get as much safety accessed as possible. And, but I don't want to, I don't want this experience to damage the, my sense of my child as a good non-dangerous human being. Because if we start to think of our child as a dangerous kid, they are going to internalize that they are a dangerous kid and it's going to be so much harder for them to not be dangerous. Yeah. Kids have to know they're good to be good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It kind of brings us back. It feels like really full circle. That's like we, you know, secure attachments about me, my core self and my behaviors aren't the same thing. I can be, I am a precious human being who sometimes, and with the families I work with, I'll be like, and hey, maybe even a lot of times, mm-hmm. like get so dysregulated that those behaviors are extremely defensive, extremely push away behaviors, and maybe even violent. And that, that doesn't change away from your child and, and also yourself, mom or dad or caregiver, or grandma, whoever you are. It's like just innate, precious goodness as a human. Mm-hmm. And I know, and I'm sure you'd say the same thing, like when, especially when I'm working with adults and we can have some of these higher level conversations in the therapy room, it's yeah. like, that's really ultimately all that we're working on in therapy is, can I create separation from who I am and what my behaviors are? Because yes. that starts to emerge, it's like, oh, so much goodness just seems like it yes. flows from that.
1: Yes. And if you can do that for yourself, it's so much easier yeah. to do that for your child. Yes. yes. Whether yes. they're yes. a teenager or a toddler or a newborn, right? Like, you know, sometimes we get really overstimulated by how much a, a colicky baby cries Absolutely. and to be able to say, this is my child's nervous system <laughs> speaking to me right now. This is not my child, Yeah. yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, I love that.
0: Yes. Yes. They're just, just right. It's the dysregulation that feels so uncomfortable or even violence Mm -hmm. at times. Right. And really trying to keep those pieces separate. Yes.
1: is so because when your child does calm down, when they're in their parasympathetic state, they're, they're not like that. Yeah. And I'm, I've never met any family that said to me, My child is like this 100% of the time. They're never not like this. It's always when they're like this, I can't, I can't handle it when they're not like this. They're great. And I don't know why they can't stay like this. You know, it's, so it's like when our kids are regulated, when we're regulated, we're usually pretty great people. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's the dysregulation. That's no fun to be around. Right, right.
0: Uh, Well, this has been so fun. I'm so glad we were able to reconnect and talk. It's just a little bit more of a, just look a little bit more closely at what some of these nuances are. And, you know, what so many people are like secure attachment, secure attachment. I want secure attachment. I want my kid to be securely attached. It's like, yes, that makes so much sense. And let's talk about what that really
1: means. Yeah. So, and what it like feels like in our yeah. body
0: It <laughs> feels like in our bodies. Absolutely. Ah, oh, thank you again so much for being with me here again this morning. And, um, yeah. I'll look forward to the next time
1: that we get to, to connect. Me too. Thank you so much for having me
0: tell, um, tell everybody, Sarah, like, where can they find you if they want to go and connect more with
1: the work that you do, where can they find you? Yeah. So, um, I have a podcast also called securely attached. Yes. Um, and which you were so lovely to come on and I have, a, um, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Sarah Brun and I have a website, Yes, and so you can find me there. And I, I really like to post and like talk about like, I don't know. I feel like I really like to talk about challenging guilt and challenging, like reevaluating kind of how we as parents can put so much pressure on ourselves to be this like perfect parent or to write ourselves off as like, it's unfixable and to really kind of find some middle space in there and be like, Nope, we can be messy and it's all good. It's yes. Really real. We can be messy and it's all good.
0: I love that. <laughs> well, I, everyone, I'll make sure that I put links to where you can find um, Sarah down in the show notes. So go and check that out. But thanks again for being with me today.
1: Thank you so much. Have a great day.
0: You too ah, so much goodness in that conversation with Dr. Bren, right? If you didn't take notes, you can read a summary and remember some of those best important little nuggets over at robingoble.com slash becoming securely attached. Over there, as well as in the show notes, you'll find links to Dr. Bren's podcast and her parent course. Y'all know by now, But I just overflow with gratitude for you, that you're here listening, that you're doing your part, whatever that part is in changing the world for our kids, their kids, and truly y'all, everyone on the planet. I will see you next week. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, yes, finally. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids. A huge video library with uh, something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingoble.com slash the club. If we aren't open now you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingoble.com slash beingwith, read all about it, and if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too.